brought to you by Penguin. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, where we talk to writers about, funnily enough, writing. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today I'm speaking to Michael McGee about his astonishing first novel, Close to Home. Luminous and devastating, it's a portrait of modern masculinity as shaped by class, by trauma and by silence, but also by the courage to love and to survive. Michael, so good to see you. Thank you for coming on. You too, Nihal. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. When did you begin to believe that you could create Sean, that you could make Sean a real, living, breathing character within a book? It came probably pretty far into the process of writing the book. The book, when I started writing it, was actually a letter. A friend of mine sort of set me a writing exercise, a task, basically as a way of getting out of my own way. I think at the time, I mean, this was back in 2016, I just started a PhD in creative writing. And I don't know if it was the pressure of starting a PhD in creative writing or if I was going through something or other, but I just couldn't quite find my way in to anything. And it was, I mean, I was still writing at the time, but it was, I just wasn't really hitting the right beats or I couldn't quite find the voice that I was looking for. And it was strange because I did know what I wanted to write about. I just, or at least I knew in general, I wanted to write about the place I was from, the people I grew up with and whatnot, you know. And he sort of set me this task. To, there was one night we sat up drinking, essentially, and I told him more than I should have about myself. Sort of told him about all these things, about my past and where I was from and where I'd grown up. And he said, basically, to start at any point in your life and go from there. And I, so I sat down and I started writing this letter. And over the course of a few months, the letter just kept getting longer and longer and longer. It was almost like a diary. And I was just sort of saying things. And then at the end, I had this manuscript of about, I don't know, 60, 70,000 words. And we both sort of realized that whatever this thing was, there was something in it that needed to be molded into the shape of a book. Because there was, as highly confessional as it was, there was like a narrative. And I was using sort of novelistic sort of ways of telling the story you know his dialogue was there and there was moments of description and lyricism and drama and stuff all within it you know but it was very rough and embryonic but it was all true and it was all about my life and my friends and my family and everybody had the real names and everybody had their you know it was very sort of i, I think i've been reading carlova canalsgaard at the time and i was sort of trying to emulate what he had done in his books but in a way i was sort of constrained by it you know because at the start, I was really, I had sort of set out to write a memoir and was dead serious about sort of authenticity and being truthful and sort of honesty and truthfulness were the facts of my life, you know. And there came a moment where I just couldn't find the right distance. I was too close to the material I was writing about and it was kind of hampering me. And I was sort of drowning it. I was like, I need to, I need to step back. And I read this essay by a brilliant American writer, Vivian Gornick, who talks about, well, she sort of talks about this in terms of nonfiction, but creating a narrative persona or an unsurrogated persona, is what she describes it as, when she's writing nonfiction, nice stuff about her life and whatnot. And basically her, what she says is that in order to acquire that distance, you have to create this other version of yourself through which to tell the story. And that's laying the other version of yourself sort of laws itself in my head. 
that was the kind of moment when I realized that this person I was writing about, even in the letter, was a person that was sort of very far removed from the person that I was five, six, seven years later while I was writing the book. That the person I was writing about was like a 21-year-old who had just come home from university, who was carrying all this anger and frustration and whatnot. And this moment overcame him and he lashes out and thus the events of the novel happen. And so what I did, and it was very, very simple, but I changed the narrator's name from Mick to Sean. And that sort of opened up everything because then I started seeing him as somebody else, but he was still somewhat connected to me. And it sort of allowed me the space to do and say and explore the things that I wanted to explore, you know. And he sort of became a character through that. There's also this other thing that happened. When I was born, my mother wanted to call me Sean. And she was very sort of set on this. But my father wouldn't allow her to because it was an explicitly Irish name. And in 1990, or at least in and around that time and before that, to carry an explicitly Irish name in Belfast was a sort of dangerous thing to do. You know, you wouldn't likely to get a job or unlikely to get a house. Or if you're stopped on the street at a British Army checkpoint, you're going to get trailed out of your car and get a gun shoved in the back of your head. And I guess my father had grown up with this sort of thing that he had to carry around with him that sort of drew attention to the fact that he was from this particular denomination and he had suffered from it. And so that was... I guess calling him Sean is in this act of reclamation. It was like, you know, I was sort of giving him this name that died the moment my name was decided upon. So then I, this connection was still there with him, but I, I had the distance that I was able to see him as, as somebody else. But that came quite late. I mean, it was probably about two or three years and in they're in actually working on the thing that I that sort of break happened, but it changed everything. That's extraordinary. What aspects of Sean do you as Michael McGee aspire to be and which aspects of Sean that you've created? I don't know if repulse is too strong a word, but certainly unnerve you. <laughs> I think, I think it, it's a weird sort of difficult question to answer in all sorts of ways, because I guess not a lot about him unnerves me at all. Actually, you know, if anything, I see, myself and him very clearly and I think other people around me who have read the book certainly do too and I think this is part of what the book's trying to do is that it's like you know it opens with this punch and it's a violent act and it's horrible and wrong in all sorts of ways and so you sort of presume to know who Sean is when this happens and then the rest of the book's then sort of excavating why it is that he did what he did and how he comes to terms with it in himself and so much of that sort of sort of process of denial, you know, he's denying the damage that he caused this other guy and the hurt that he caused and the pain because he justifies it in his head that this guy hurt me, so I get to hurt him. And I can see that logic and I understand where that logic comes from because I was once a young man who grew up in a particular place at a particular time that was sort of carrying this legacy of violence and grew up in an environment that was actually quite violent. That sort of moral barometer is different in those sort of environments. And so the mode of resolving conflict is often the resort to violence. And I know that then, and that's something that then I've had to grapple with in myself a lot in the sort of process of becoming a man. And I think that's something that I've sort of realized through writing the book is that you might become 
19, 20, 21, 22 or whatever age it is that you are supposed to have come a man, but it actually comes with actually proactively becoming. It's not just as simple as an age and it's almost like a process of self-education. And that was basically my 20s. And so I think like if I if I was to aspire to be sort of Sean, I would be regressing in a way. But I kind of love his, I say I love his naivety, but I was very naive whenever I was young. With that, they sort of see through people in a way that I admire. And he's probably a bit more, <laughs> and I hate to say this, but he's probably a bit more in control of himself in a way that I, even I wasn't. And he isn't in control of himself at all in a way, you know. But he, he wants to be good, I guess, is the thing. He wants to sort of get his life in order. And I can sort of identify with that. Because you grew up in a post-Good Friday Agreement Northern Ireland, were you a spectator to how the trouble shaped masculinity in Northern Ireland? Or were you yourself directly shaped by the troubles, your idea of what it meant to be a man? I think probably, again, a bit of both. You know, I grew up in West Belfast and my mother grew up on the Falls Road. And so the, the, the thing about how the Troubles worked and how it happened was that the vast majority of the violence that happened and the terrible things that happened during those 30 years happened in very particular areas. And those areas were working class areas and poor areas. You know, this is the thing. And her experience then was that she has countless amounts of friends who died or who were interned, who went to jail or whose lives were sort of destroyed in some way. Also, I have there's people in my family and my extended family who were also in some way either implicated or hurt or lost someone. But also that's the case with most people from here, you know. I mean, I was born in 1990. I was eight years old when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. So, for instance, I had a stepfather who was a Republican, and my mother's a Republican, and my whole family are Republicans, but he was probably much more Republican than others, if you know what I mean. <laughs> and so I saw very directly the effect that it had on him in particular. I saw it in my mind as well, but with him, I sort of saw it very clearly. And I won't go into too much detail, but he was very, a difficult man in a lot of ways. He was emotionally kind of broken, and he was also emotionally kind of completely closed off. Because I was estranged from my own father from a very young age, my early and formative relationships with men and indeed with masculinity come from a place of absence, you know. I was very much raised by my mother. And so she was our patriarchal figure in a lot of ways, you know. And that sort of manifested itself in all sorts of ways, like which I kind of allude to in the book a little bit. And that, you know, you grew up in a council estate. There was a lot of tough wee lads who wanted to beat you up. And so you sort of had to stand up for yourself. And if you didn't, it was worse. And so my mother played the role of teaching me how to fight, for for instance, or, or sort of put me in the positions where I had to fight. And that, But that was kind of the rules of the game in that neighbourhood, you know, because she knew herself what it was to live there. And how this kind of mentality of domination exists. So if I were to ask you if a young Michael McGee was predator or prey. Mm. Yeah. Because it's almost as if you're describing a binary yeah. where you're either one or the yeah. other. 
and of course you can you can be predator and prey simultaneously, can't you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I wonder what you are, and what is Sean? Because Anthony, Anthony's predator, isn't he? I think there was. I remember looking like if I think about my childhood. I mean, I was happy. We had a I had a brilliant childhood, you know, as everybody does. I'm intensely nostalgic for it. Everybody around me had a brilliant childhood, you know, regardless of how poor we were or how fucking emotionally destroyed our parents were and traumatized and suffered from PTSD and anxiety and bipolar syndrome and all these sort of undiagnosed sort of mental illnesses that they had. I was very happy, but I would say that I was also scared all the time. And I remember being scared. I was scared of people and I was always scared of being beaten up. Even though I didn't really get beaten up, I was kind of lucky because I had brothers who were really tough and they kind of looked after me a lot, you know, and I had like an extended family who people didn't really want to mess around with. So I was kind of insulated, but I always had this fear of being hurt. And it sort of goes back to some, I remember like in being four or five years of age and seeing sort of very violent beatings happen, you know, on the street and, and being kind of scarred by it. But I guess at other times, as every young man does, in an attempt to kind of fit in, they behave in a way that isn't by any means sort of desirable or good or moral. But it's it's and it's kind of the way bullying works in schools. It's the way any kind of that, that group thing happens is that you assimilate into it. You sort of find, you know, the bar and you you, you sort of do it. You know, you act jack the lad so in the hope that people will sort of accept you for it, you know, and that's kind of how those very toxic environments sort of emerge. So I guess in, in different instances, I was certainly both, as probably most young men are. If today someone walks past you, bumps into you in a bar, what is your instinctual reaction to that? <laughs> it's not as bad as what it used to be. <laughs> It's not so bad. There are moments, and this is sort of part of the work that I've sort of had to do on myself, which is, I think, the work that Sean's just starting to do by the end of the book. Yeah, there there was this sort of very angry, and, and a lot of it comes out of sort of repressing kind of trauma or repressing things that it sort of manifests itself in outbursts. And like, I mean, I'm not nowhere near as short-tempered or angry as I was. I'm much more zen now. But I had, there is moments, there's been, you know, maybe once or twice recently I was trying to cross the road and a, a guy shouted out his car window at me and I sort of tried to chase the car down the road. You know, it's just like, just a moment of like, what did you say? And sort of went after him. And my, my girlfriend sort of looking at me and just being like, what are you doing? And then feeling that sort of moment of complete shame in myself was like, what am I doing? I'm a 33 year old man and I'm chasing a man down the street because he beeped his horn at me, you know, and the big fear and the fear that I have. And it's something that I'm sort of very conscious of now is that, you know, I'm approaching that time in my life when we're thinking about children and having kids. And I never want my children to see me behave in that way or to sort of see outbursts or them to be sort of exposed to it because I don't think that's healthy or good for them. And also the, it would just bring me such shame to put them through that sort of thing, you know? Mm. So there's definitely, uh, there's there's a lot of backing on, you know? So Michael, I asked you about what you aspired to be with Sean and what made you think, well, this is tough about Sean. But I could have equally asked you the same question about Anthony, couldn't I? And how 
you yourself identify with Anthony and how you don't identify with him. Oh, yeah, no, like, I mean, you know, Anthony sort of has, for all his, you know, the, the difficulties that he's gone through in life and the this, you know, in, in all sorts of ways, he's, he's completely broken as a person, but he has this sort of dreams and ambitions, you know, and he's always trying to be better. And that's kind of the thing with people who are addicts, you know, that he, he sort of wants to get his life back on track, but he's constantly being sucked back into his own self and his own nightmares. And I think that was really important. It was to kind of show him having, you know, he wants to write these screenplays. He wants to read Hollywood blockbusters that sound awfully like other films that he's watched, you know. And Sean sort of humours him and, and, and sort of nods along and says, yeah, that sounds great, but, but also feels really sorry for him. And there is that kind of thing as well of like when you're an artist, the, one of the biggest fears that I have or did have, I probably still have, is that, you know, to, to work at something for so long and then to realize that it's never going to get anywhere or it's not good. That's always a kind of, you know, to get to your older age in life and having never published anything. That's always been a big fear of mine, <laughs> just to like have never to, to, to sort of dedicated all this time and nothing to ever come of it. But then that's a question of the joy in work. And whether or not that's the actual joy of creating anything, but there's also there's a lot of aspects of Anthony's character less admirable, and you know he's a very oppressive figure. But I think a lot of what he does for Sean in particular is out of love, and he has a lot of love, and he feels it very very intensely. He's almost aggressive in his love, you know, that he holds Sean close to him and, and sort of kisses him in the face and. He has these grand gestures that he sort of falls back on every once in a while. It can be really heartbreaking in all sorts of ways and uncomfortable for Sean, but he knows that they're coming from a, a place of goodness. And and I guess it's the same with Sean's mother. And she also is sort of stuck in this sort of death grip of trauma that's haunting them all. That, and I think that's one of the things that I admire most about, and I think it was really important for me to write about was I think there's so much bleakness in fiction that's written about places or environments that I'm brought up in, you know, and working class literature. That's not to say there isn't brilliant literature. There is. There's some amazing books that have been written that are about the same sort of things that manga are about. But I often do feel that there is so much bleakness that it kind of overwhelms the, the whole experience of it, you know. And life's not really like that. At least not for me, it wasn't. It sort of goes back to what I was saying about before, about childhood and, and how much, how joyous it was for me and in all sorts of ways. But I guess that's the thing what literature does is that at least when it's good, it sort of gets that balance right between the comedy and the tragedy, you know, that, that you can't really have one without the other. And if you do, it doesn't quite fly. What's really interesting is, do you feel that the part of you, Michael McGee, that wants to chase a bloke down the road who's bibbed his horn at you is something that you should erase or actually it is part of who you are and to suppress it means it will just manifest itself in different ways, which may not be altogether that great either. What is your attitude to that part of you? With these kind of things, it always depends on the environment that you're in at the particular time it happens. I mean, when I was growing up, anger was seen as a perfectly logical and reasonable way to behave in terms of how you express yourself. And I'm still like that. I mean, I, sh I shout at the TV. 
I watch documentaries about the Troubles and scream at them, you know, because they're all wrong, you know, and like I watch the news, I get angry. And I think that's fine. You know, you can kind of do that. But it's when you can't open a can of tuna and out of sheer anger, you throw it at the window and the window smashes and then you scream at the window like this didn't happen. But that's an example of something that could. And it's completely illogical, completely unreasonable and might be a bit shocking. And because my, I don't know, maybe I'm getting too personal here, but my girlfriend's from a very different sort of class background than I'm from. And so sometimes my modes of behavior can be quite shocking to her, even after like four or five years, you know. Well, to, the, to be fair, Michael, this is very well related to the book. Yeah, I mean, this is, yeah, of course, you know, I mean. Right, I mean, yeah, this, yeah. I mean you know. And, and that's, that's the thing that Sean's sort of working with here. And it's this kind of. Uh, you know, uh, I think your 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 modes of behaviour are only called in the question when you know you're being looked at by someone exterior to you, and if they have a different value system or a different idea of how to behave, then you become very conscious of it in yourself. And I think a lot of the tension I've had in myself over the last five six years is because I've made that move away from where I'm from. I kind of you know did the escape, and then escaping the betrayal. And then the betrayal changed my modes of behavior in order to fit into this other world that I'm occupying. And then you, when you realize that happens, then you sort of go to yourself, okay, I need to retain that part of me that I've lost in the process of movement. And I have done that. I've sort of went, okay, I am who I am. This is how I speak. This is my accent. This is where I'm from. And I kind of have to say that with, you have to say it with your chest in a way, you know, because if you assimilate the codes and you assimilate into the language, you're just going to become the very thing that you're sort of fighting against in some way. But that's always a tension that I'm probably going to, particularly now that I have a book out, that I've went to university, I've got degrees and I'm PhD and I've been in them environments where you're kind of constantly code switching and behaving differently and suddenly you have a telephone voice all day. So then it's like, right, hold on, I have to find a way to use this to empower myself with the way I speak and to use it in, in situations and in environments where it's challenging them. So through writing, you can do that. And that's kind of important to kind of to keep a hold of that voice and shout from the margins, as Bell Hooks would say, you know. So then when you're in an environment whereby those values are different to those which you grew up in, what have you learnt what aspects of being a boy from West Belfast actually in an environment where people consider themselves potentially to be superior or more intellectual, that actually those elements are in some ways, and this sounds kind of cliched, but a superpower? I think that probably the best examples whenever I was doing my PhD and I was sort of in the sort of institution a lot more and I found myself in meetings or presentations or conferences or whatever, and you sort of see how, well, you know how academics work, you know, they're it's a constant game of one-upmanship. But if you can sort of cut through that and challenge them in some way about what their sort of presumptions or views are based on their own sort of ideas or stereotyping, then you can kind of cut through in a way. But it's also very, very uncomfortable. I mean, it took me a long, long time to be able to walk through or exist in certain spaces, you know. I think the thing that you sort of, that I did, or at least I sort of learned to do over a long time, was that if you learn the rules of the game, and then you use the rules of the game to your advantage in any way you can in terms of just the way you speak or articulate yourself or whatever, but also by retaining as much of yourself and your background and the place that you're from and the position that you're coming from, whether that's through the literature that you produce or the art you produce or the music you make or whatever, 
you're golden, you know, but it's the fear of being co-opted, I think, is the problem. You dare not be co-opted. You dare not, like, become them because then you've lost yourself. Uh, but that's a tension, I think, anybody who's experienced any degree of social mobility will probably have within them until the day they bloody die. <laughs> and that's just the, that's just the fact, you know. What did you learn about the illiberalism of those who consider themselves to be liberally minded? To go back to what we were talking about before, loosely anyway, it took me a long time to be able to talk or to articulate myself, but I was never really able to. I actually kind of had to teach myself how to do it. And it was always a massive insecurity for me whenever I was at university. I was the one who never ever spoke during class. Or if I was in the company of people saying a bloody board you're reading or a book lunch or something like that, I had no way of knowing how to behave. And I sort of had to learn that, which was the learning of the rules of the game. Which you recount word by word in oh, the yeah. book almost, really. I mean. Yeah, yeah, I do. And, but Sean's much more sceptical of it than I was, yes, I think. Yes, I think yes, I sort of jumped in, yes, you know, and, and tried to assimilate as quickly as I could. He He's much more... He's much more hesitant and distrustful of it. Oh, wait a minute. He's like, okay, I'm out of here. Dickheads, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's kind of what he is, right? It's like yeah. you're chatting shit, I'm out that's, of here, right? That's like, why I admire him, whereas I was like, oh, for cool, you know, and trying to like... But what happened then uh, is that I put so much work into learning those rules and, and so much work into learning how to speak and put myself in a position where I had to speak and articulate myself and educated myself politically and sort of became very political and very aware in all sorts of ways in terms of, you know, in sort of republicanism or socialism in Ireland in particular, that whenever I found myself in certain environments, I realized that everybody around me was lying, you know, that they were kind of spoofing, as you would say, or they were performing, that they hadn't done the reading, but they knew how to say things in a way that convinced you. And that was a big sort of moment where I was like, oh, okay. These are all spoofing. Not everyone, of course. I mean, there's some loads of people I know that are really, really brilliant and, and engaged and, and smart and all sorts of ways. Like, But there is sometimes an artificial. And I think, you know, anyone who's been to Cambridge knows this or one of the Oxbridge sort of places um, that, that they sort of they know they've got the tools and they know how to say things and they know how to convince people very, very easily. Hmm. But if you if you sort of poke at them a wee bit and you can kind of. You can see the wobbly legs upon which all their principles stand, you know. Why did you believe that these aspects of your life could form a narrative that could be contained within 250 pages? <laughs> it was blind delusion, I think. I mean, it was completely... I mean, this is the thing, when you're writing something or when you're writing anything, really, you're sort of, you don't really know what's possible until you're doing it. You're sort of, you're you're walking through a cave with a tiny little spotlight on your head and trying to see all the, you're trying to find a way out, essentially. But the cave's too big and you're too small and the light's very dim <laughs> and you're sort of just crawling through. I knew that I wanted to write about this punch and I wanted to write about community service. That they were two things that I had been through. I mean, this is, the book is, based on a punch that I threw and an assault that I committed and a sentencing that I got and and whatnot. And I knew that these things were sort of very formative and sort of changed my relationship with who I was. 
and I knew I wanted to do this. And it was just, and I guess that letter sort of, the great trick of the letter was to convince me that no one would ever read what I had to say here, you know, that it was private. I mean, it's, it's the same sort of question that would go to, I mean, there's a long history of people who have written autobiographical novels from before Proust, you know, and you're trying to find the novel, you're trying to find a structure within it and find the story. And when you're mining your life in order to do that, or mining your own experiences in order to do that, you're sort of just, it almost becomes your memory then, you know? And there's moments where I've had this sort of, whatever I'm reflecting back in my early 20s, that I've had this sort of go, hold on, that's not how this happened, because I, this is how I wrote it. Actually, it happened this way. And this sort of divergence and, and trickiness of memory, something that sort of happened through the process of writing that book. I mean, it's been, I spent five, six years writing the book. And so th there was a long, long process of being sort of stuck in the past, trying to find a shape to it. That was the most difficult part, I think, was actually trying to contain. But I knew that moment, that sort of post-university, moving back to the city, realizing that this degree that Sean has is worth nothing. And that sort of context was also really, really important for, and because I knew I was like, I, I remember that feeling of coming home in 2011 and seeing what had happened in those three years from 2008 and seeing how everyone's livelihoods was suddenly upended and it was all young people and everyone left. And that was like, okay, this is, and I always went back to it the whole time I was writing through my twenties. It was always that moment, but I just hadn't had the tools yet to be able to write it, you know? We talked about the letter, that this novel, Close to Home, started as a letter. Other than yourself, if you printed out this letter and put it in an envelope, what would be the address you would write on it? Now, don't give me the address, but who would you send it to other than yourself? If I was honest, uh, I'd probably send it to my father, yeah, to my dad. I would send it to him. And we've been estranged since I was a child. But I would send it to him. I'd say, it's all your fault, look. <laughs> it's, like, it's his fault you've become an extremely lauded author. <laughs> well, that's all me doing. <laughs> it's in spite of him. That's it. Isn't that fucking glorious? <laughs> yeah. Would you expect a response from him? Mm, I don't think I would. I think he knows the book is out there as it is. I think he's probably read it. And I don't know. I don't know. I mean, this is something that I've been having to think about a lot. But also, I don't care. There's part of me that's just, I don't need anything from him. I mean, I say that I would send him the letter. I would do it just to spite him. You know, it wouldn't be to get any kind of acknowledgement from him or anything like that. It would, it would just be to spite him. Michael, we asked you to bring a few objects, as we always do, to our brilliant authors on the Penguin podcast. And, uh, wow, eclectic. <laughs> a Google Street View, Michael. Why must one of your objects be a Google Street View? Well, I mean, it goes back to everything we've been talking about in a way, you know, that there was this movement in my life from one place to another, you know, a movement from one class position to another in a lot of ways, a sort of degree of social mobility. And I sort of, in, in the process of doing that, I moved from one side of the city to the other. I moved to a much more affluent area. 
I'd say affluent. It is more affluent, most certainly, but it's also the sort of university area. And I've lived over this side for six, seven years, and after a while, but it also sort of aligned with the time I was writing the book that I sort of became intensely sort of homesick that I missed the place I was from, regardless of the fact that that place was 20 minutes up the road. And I wasn't going back a lot for all sorts of reasons. And so I started going on Google Street View and dropping myself into the street where I grew up, the house I grew up in, and sort of moved around that area. And I would do this almost every night. And then I sort of started branching out and started going to different areas in West Belfast. And I think at the start, I was almost trying to find myself. You know, I was trying to find myself on Google Street View. I was kind of obsessed with doing that. And so I went back to Milltown Cemetery. I went to the Royal Hospital, went to Falls Road, went to Lanadoon, back to my school in Andersonstown, all these different little parts of West Belfast. And in the process of doing that, I kept seeing images on Google Street View that resonated with me in some way, whether they were funny or had some historical significance or just anything that sort of struck me. And, and so I started taking screenshots and then I kept doing this and it became then the thing that I was doing when I should have been writing, but particularly quite late at night and the screen archive of screenshots sort of accumulated up to about two, 3000 images. And then I started curating the images and putting them up on Instagram and all this sort of stuff, you know, classic way of getting out of writing. But at the same time, while I was writing, I was part of that project was also sort of understanding the place I was from and constantly wanting to be present in that place, even though I was present interactively, you know, that I, I was through this medium. And so I would be, you know, if I'm writing particular sections in the book or particular scenes that are set in places such as Casement Park or Andersonstown or wherever, that I would go there on Google Street View and drop myself in. And I would just be there. It was almost like I was just transplanting myself from the leafy suburbs of South Belfast and, and putting myself back in, in the West, you know. Um, and it was good because you can go back in time on Google Street View. You can go right back to 2008 and there's recordings every year from then. So you can go back and see how things existed as they did with then in 2011, 2012, 2013. And seeing how the, the city changes and how shopfronts change and how businesses change and all that kind of thing. But it was open on my desktop pretty much the whole time I was writing writing the book. You mentioned Milltown Cemetery, and that's actually your second object. Why? Why Milltown Cemetery? Well, in terms of what it is, you know, it's a very symbolic, important sort of historical space in, in West Belfast in particular, you know, it's sort of, it's one of the oldest cemeteries in the city, one of the biggest, but it's also, it's the place where Bobby Sands is buried, Joe McDonald, Kieran Nugent, all these people who died during the Troubles are there, all the Republicans, all the Socialist Republicans, and I spent a lot of time there doing community service, as Sean did, you know, so, and, and it has all these associations with, you know, you might have seen the cemetery during a Republican funeral was attacked by Michael Stone and five people were murdered, which was a horrifying sort of, I know people who were there that day. And if you, you watch the footage back and you see the horror, you know, and that sort of always stuck with me. And I remember just moving through the cemetery when I was working there and, and 
seeing the little flags on each grave and the the word Ogla, which means young warrior, beside the graves of young volunteers and the ages of these volunteers. You know, they were all 17, 18, 19 years old. They were all boys, you know. And that's the that's one of the things that you sort of forget is is that so many people so many people died, but how small the sort of pool that they came from was that all these boys had families and all these families had cousins and sisters and brothers who all went through this experience that these thirty years it was it hung over them and they lived through it and tried to get on day to day, you know. And Milton, I think, sort of the memorial to it. Music track. Tell me about <laughs> why John Hopkins Feel First Life is something that you had to include in your edition of the Penguin Podcast, Michael. <laughs> Again, as I was writing the book, I was listening to a lot of ambient music. It's something that I came to quite late. I always like to have some noise in the background, but nothing that I can sort of sing along to or it can't have any voices in it. And so, so I guess ambient was the right way to go. And I think a lot of writers actually do that. Yeah. yeah. But John Hopkins popped up and I sort of became obsessed with his album. I think it's called Singularity. And that track in particular, Feel First Life. The thing that ambient music does is that it taps that nerve, that sort of nostalgic nerve. It's It makes you feel things and remember things. Often in the background of in this, in ambient music, you hear a creaking chair, almost like a rocking chair, you know. And they know what they're doing. You know, they're, they're, they're trying to take you back to a place that didn't even exist in your memory, but you're there. And that's what that song in particular did for me. And also, it is very similar to Brian Eno's uh, The Last Ship, which David Foster Wallace was a massive fan of. And, and one of the things he sort of says about it is that, it, that through the comfort and the sadness and the nostalgia is this undercurrent of joy. You know, and, and I think that's what Hopkins gets in that song is the feel first life is the beginnings of something. The beginning of something's always an optimistic place. It's always a place where everything's possible. I think that's what that song sort of tapped in to. Next up in your objects, Michael, Seamus Dean's Reading in the oh, Dark. Yeah. Why this? Well, it's a very good book, and I've read it now a few. I think I've read it like two or three times now. Last time I read it was probably about two years ago. I think he does the thing that I'm attempting to do in in some way, in my small little way, as good as anybody, and that is to kind of articulate the experience of being haunted by the past and those sort of heavy silences that exist. You know, he does it in a different way. To be fair. But stylistically, that book was really, really important for me. The first person in particular and and how you experience this childhood, this adolescence through the eyes of a young boy who's experiencing the world almost for the first time, you know. And what that does for you is that it, it means that you're experiencing his experiences as he experiences them, which is something I was trying to do with Sean and trying to make that first person as close as possible that you're moving through the world as he moves through it. Very little in the way of self-reflection or awareness. You know, it had to be restricted in that way. And so you feel everything that he feels. And I think Dean does that and it's magical. He gets 
the psyche of a particular time. I mean, the, the book starts in the 40s, I think, 1944 or 5, and goes right up to 68, 69, which is the beginning of the Troubles, you know, and, and you sort of get this undercurrent of tension bubbling through it, and it's sort of heightened by superstition, by ghosts, by furries, by all these folkloric episodes that are sometimes incredibly haunting and other times incredibly beautiful. And he's, he's able to contain all that within the space of, and his novel's thinner than mine, you know, it's probably only just over 200. And he was shortlisted for the Booker. And I think he might have been one of the first from the side of the water to be shortlisted for the Booker. But it's just a remarkable book. And he's a remarkable thinker. I've learned so much from him, reading his criticism and his um, books about nationalism in Ireland. And yeah, they're, they're on a three of their own, like, I think. so. Now, next up, it's an object that means that you and I can definitely be friends because it's one of my favourite films ever. <laughs> and, of course, 28 years after it was released, what is at the heart of it is as relevant to French culture as, sadly, we've seen not yeah. that long ago. Yeah. To now, tell me about, and I don't need to know about La Haine because I've watched it about 100 <laughs> times, but... Why did you want to put La Haine, or The Hate, if you translate it, as one of your objects for today? And Michael, I, if I could give you a hug, I would give you a hug right now for choosing this. It is a, it is an absolute belter, isn't it? Um, and I only watched it for the first time a couple of years ago. My my girlfriend, Ellen, she works in uh, for the independent cinema in Belfast here. So she and she's introduced me to a lot of films, although I'd heard of La Haine before that, but just had never got around to watching it. And then she made me sit down one night we have a projector in our living room, pretty good one as well. And it was just the experience of watching that for the first time is unlike anything anything else that I'd ever, ever watched. That opening scene is just astonishing. And and the bit where he's like, the, you know, he's lying in bed and this, the, the wee lad comes in and is waking him up and he's just screaming at him, you know. There's so much about that film that's just, it spoke so directly to my experience of like growing up where I did. And... So much of it's stylized, and that's what's beautiful about it, that he's able to be such... It's such a stylish film. It's such a... It's a heartbreaker of a film as well. And you're seeing... And incredibly political in how you're seeing this anger. You're seeing why... You're just about understanding the circumstances where that anger's coming from, but then you're seeing the self-destructiveness of that anger, you know? And that scene where he talks about, you know, your man has his, his car burned and he's devastated. You know, the guy they go to buy the stuff from. And he's like raging about his car being burned and they're all laughing at him, saying, sure, it's only a car. You know, and he says, that's my livelihood. And they're like, ah, sure. He gets shot or killed by the police, sorry. And, that, and that's, what does it matter? And that kind of nihilism just spoke very directly to me. And I always go back, I mean, that scene, which is, I mean, I'm just sitting here, you know, I've got to sit and rave basically about the film for a while. But the scene where they go to the art gallery and they walk in in their tracksuits and they're just like lifting champagne off the thing and necking it and sort of just and just what happens when when that happens when someone who walks into a space that they're completely at odds with and they do it in a group and you see the tension in people's shoulders and it's a beautifully built scene because. You know when you're, the, the viewer sees it before they do, that the, the wee lads from the estate are completely unaware and they don't give a bollocks. But if what's in the question I asked myself, if, if, if it had been just one of them in that room, it would have been different. 
because they would have been alone and they would have felt very alone. But when they're all together, they're in a position where they can be the opposition within that space, you know, and make it uncomfortable for everybody else, which is fucking beautiful in a way, you know. They walk in and say, see all this? This is bullshit, you know? <laughs> and that's that's the great challenge that they pose to them. Yeah, just, and, and, and I watched that film while I was writing. For the first time I watched that film, I was writing a book, which is a, which I'm both deeply ashamed about, but also incredibly grateful to, for doing it because it probably influenced me in all sorts of ways, you know, just a belter. It absolutely is. As has been this conversation, Michael, I've got to say, it's Thank you so, much. so liberating for me to speak to someone who's as creative as you are and has written this beautiful book, but yet has those elements of masculinity that, I completely recognise it myself. Like I'm the I'm the guy that my yeah. wife has to stop me from chasing the car down the road, right? Like it, like, <laughs> even at the weekend, she had to stop me from getting out of the car because some guy was uh, was being being aggressive to me. So, oh, man. so it's no, it's no. a good thing I don't drive. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> like you know, <laughs> no, you don't want to do that. You don't want to do that. No, um, no, no, Michael, thank you so much. Right, it's been a wonderful conversation. I'm glad that you could join us on the Penguin Podcast. Thank you for listening, wherever you are. If you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And you can leave us a review too and help get the word out as you should. And finally, if you want to find out more about this podcast or Michael's work, head over to penguin.co.uk slash podcasts, where you'll find compelling conversations with authors from Margaret Atwood to Benjamin Zephaniah. Dip in and see what you can find. I'm Nihal Arthanaika. I'll see you next time.